And uh, we're going to take this chapter as a whole, but I won't read the entire chapter. I'm going to start at the beginning and then we'll skip to the end. John chapter 9, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Go with me now to verse 35. Between what we just read and what we're about to read, there's a series of interrogations as the Pharisees try to figure out what has happened here, and they end up sending this man who has been healed, kicking him out of the synagogue. And uh, then we pick up the story here in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Father, we come grateful for these words. Grateful that you have not left us in darkness. But you have sent your Son who reveals all truth to us. But it is easy to think that we can figure out the truth on our own. That we are sufficient to know what we need with our own intellect, with our own ability to understand. And so would you bless us now with humility as we come and we listen to your Son. We pray for the powerful work of your Holy Spirit that he would miraculously Open our hearts to this word so that we would receive it and be transformed by it. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I am intimidated by malls. And it's not just the typical male fear and loathing of shopping and spending money in general. Uh, that's not what scares me about malls. I, I have traced this deep-seated anxiety back to an adolescent experience. You remember those pictures? They, they must have been in other places, but I remember them at malls. And, and they, were, they were optical illusions. 
You looked at them, and then, if you looked at them correctly, you, you began to see a 3D hidden image in the picture. With my exhaustive sermon research, I discovered that these pictures are called stereograms. But here's my confession. I have never been able to see the hidden picture. Never in my life. I've tried all the techniques. I've relaxed my eyes. I've squinted my eyes. I've stared at it for a long time. I've done everything that everyone tells you to do. I've looked at multiple different pictures, and I have never been able to see the hidden image. <laughs> it's a trauma I've had to learn to live with all my life. It would be easy to come to John chapter 9 with a similar feeling of intimidation. Because Jesus talks about those who can see and those who can't. And maybe you thought as we read those words from Jesus, what if I can't see it? What, what if I can't see the hidden image? What if, what if I don't have the ability to have the sight, the special spiritual sight that Jesus seems to be talking about? Well, my task this morning is to convince you that you shouldn't be intimidated, that that fear is misplaced. Because the Jesus we find here in John chapter 9 is not some hippie in a cave spouting unexplainable mystical gibberish. He's not some mysterious stranger offering you a red or a blue pill. He is not a stereogram embarrassing you in front of your friends at the mall. Jesus here rather is simply drawing our attention to two great truths. Truths that are at the core of the biblical story, that are at the heart of the Christian message. The truth of sin and the truth of grace. Jesus wants to awaken us to those realities that are not only at the heart of the biblical storyline, but they are at the heart of human history and they are at the heart of the reality of our lives. Sin and grace. So for a few moments, let's let Jesus help us to see these great truths. First of all, sin. Did you notice how blindness immediately raises the topic of sin for the disciples of Jesus? They see this man who's been blind from birth. And what is their first response? What's the first thing out of their mouth? What's the question that comes to their minds? Whose fault is it? Someone close to this situation has majorly messed up. Because for them, this physical malady, this blindness, was conclusive evidence of guilt. Someone, either his parents or him, had messed up. They had sinned. And in response, Jesus, he doesn't disconnect blindness and sin. It might seem like that at first. But he tells the man to go and wash, which is an image of cleansing from sin. And then at the end of the chapter, Jesus is still talking about blindness and guilt. So he, he doesn't disconnect 
blindness and sin. Rather, he redefines the relationship between them. You see, this man's blindness wasn't the symptom of individual failure. It was the symptom of a much larger problem. You see, Jesus wants to open up a conversation. He wants to open up a conversation not about problematic individual behavior. He wants to open up a conversation about cosmic brokenness. He wants to open up a conversation about the wreckage that was created not just by our individual failures, but by the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. The chaos and the death that was unleashed in the world because Adam and Eve chose to reject God's ways for their own. That's what Jesus wants to talk about. He doesn't want to talk about behavior. He wants to talk about a world where a baby is born blind even if his parents do everything Jesus wants to talk about an unruly darkness. He wants to talk about an unmanageable need. Something that can't be dealt with by human behavior. That's what the religious experts don't get. That's what they don't grasp about Jesus. That between these two passages we read, that's why they interrogate this man and his parents. And then they're back to the man and eventually they, they throw this man who has been miraculously healed. They throw him out of the community and say, You're, you are forsaken to sin. You see, these, these leaders, they, they trafficked in manageable formulas. Solid if-then statements. If you follow the right religious and moral codes, then you don't have problems like blind babies. And if you have problems like blind babies, then you haven't followed the religious and moral codes. Someone, someone close to the situation, somewhere down the line, has majorly messed up. They took this view so far as to propose that a baby in the womb could sin and it could result in physical maladies like this. And Jesus wants to reveal to them and to us the problem is so much bigger than we think it is. The problem is so much bigger than we think it is. It is a problem that cannot be solved by following rules. It is a problem that cannot be solved by proper behavior. It is a problem that cannot be solved by religion or morality. Jesus wants to deal with the wreckage of sin that is unmanageable, uncontrollable, and it affects us all. Whether we're a victim or a victimizer. Jesus says, you have an unmanageable need. And to believe or to live otherwise, it's blindness. You see, the only true and lasting blindness is not seeing your profound weakness. 
That's why these leaders, they had all the trappings of science. They had a rigorous theological education. They had precise ritual purity. They faithfully adhered to the Mosaic law. All the external trappings of sight. But Jesus reveals that they internally, they are blind. Because they cannot see their weakness in the face of a world that has been ruined by sin. Jesus In this passage, he reminds me a little bit of Shel Silverstein in his poem, The Little Blue Engine. Silverstein, in that poem, he takes the story of the engine that said, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and eventually could, and he upends that story. And he says, at the end of the poem, if the hill is tough and the trail is rough, Just thinking you can ain't enough. Just thinking you can ain't enough. That's what Jesus wants us to see. As you stand before a world that has been profoundly broken, that is not as it should be because of the sin of Adam and Eve, just thinking you can ain't enough. That's not a hidden truth. That's not a hidden reality. That is clear-eyed honesty. But it is a hard truth to hear. It's a hard truth to see. Because don't you love being the expert? Don't you love having the answer to the question? Don't you love having a solution to the problem? I do. I love when people come and ask me questions and I can give them an answer. It makes me feel good. And there's, there's nothing wrong. I want to make sure you, you understand. There's nothing wrong with having a, an expertise in a certain vocation. There's nothing wrong with having good and full knowledge of a certain subject. As long as that doesn't delude you. As long as you realize, even with your expertise and your knowledge and your skill. There is a sickness at the core of your existence, your relationships, your life in the world. There is a sickness that you can't cure. That's not a hidden picture. That is clear-eyed honesty, but it, that's a hard truth to hear. That's a hard truth to see, to see because not only do we like being the expert, but doesn't it also frustrate you to no end To do the right thing and not get what you want? Isn't it so frustrating to do right and still not get what you want? You know, that frustration, that's okay. The Bible shares that frustration. Go and read the book of Ecclesiastes. That frustration in many ways is is good because we're facing the reality of a world that's been wrecked by sin. And it is good when that frustration reveals to us a need that we can't manage. A problem that we can't solve. A question 
that we can't answer on our own. Jesus wants us to see that just thinking you can ain't enough. We're in another children's rhyme. All the king's horses, all the king's men, couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's a world that has been wrecked and ruined. But, strange as it may seem, this is not a pessimistic message. Jesus doesn't leave us in this pessimism of a broken and shattered world. He turns us from the reality of sin. And he helps us to see another great truth. Another great reality. At the heart of history. At the heart of the story that God is telling. That is the truth about God's grace. And to talk about grace, we need to talk about light. Obviously an important theme in this gospel is an important theme in this chapter. And I I need you to remember that God, when he creates the world, how does he begin that creation? He says, let there be light. And so throughout scripture, darkness symbolizes, is representative of anti-creation, chaos, and death. And light throughout scripture represents pro-creation. Not procreation, but pro-creation. Never mind. mind. It represents light and peace. And add to this subject of light, remembering a couple of weeks ago how we talked about the Feast of Booths. Remember that with John chapter 7? This harvest festival of God's people where they remembered his provision in the desert. And we talked about how the celebration was full of all of this water imagery. Well, it was full of light imagery as well. Lots of candles at the temple and in the homes of God's people. Why? Well, at one level, what do crops need to grow to flourish? Well, they need water and they need sunlight, right? At another level, how did God lead his people through the desert? The shining cloud, the pillar of fire. At night, he led them with light. And remember that these festivals, they, they, didn't, they weren't just about the past and the present. They were also about the future. They anticipated a time when God would establish an eternal feast, an eternal festival. And the prophets of the Old Testament pick up on these images of water and light as they anticipate doing that great work of fully restoring his people and renewing all creation. So that Isaiah in Isaiah 42 talks about the servant that will come and do this work. And he says he is a light to the nations who will open the eyes of the blind. So context of that festival. All of these anticipation, all of these anticipations attached to water and light. Hear that, feel that. John 7, Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me for living water. John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. John chapter 9, I am the light of the world one more time and let me demonstrate to you that I am the light of the world as I take this man 
who was blind from birth. And I send him to a pool. The very pool that the priest would have taken a pitcher and dipped it in as part of the celebration of the, fest, of the Feast of Booths and taken it to the temple and poured it out on the altar. In the context of all of those expectations, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then he demonstrates, I am the light of the world. But I said grace. What does light have to do with grace? Well, see, this restoring and renewing light that is promised in the Old Testament, that is fulfilled in Jesus, this restoring, renewing light is not the impersonal light of the sun. It is the personal favor of God. That's why when God displays his unique presence with his people, he shows up as light. It's why throughout Scripture we hear the desire over and over and over again that God's face would shine on us. Because, see, the light of God that addresses our unmanageable need, a world ruined and wrecked by sin, it's His grace. It is His favor. And Jesus is that Light. He is that favor. He is that grace that steps in and addresses the profound brokenness of our world and our hearts and our lives. As we read in community Bible reading this week in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the radiance of God. He is God's face shining on this world. And as always is the case with this gospel, we are left with a very simple question. How will you respond? John, over and over and over again in this gospel, he puts Jesus in front of us and he says, he's bread, he's water, he's wine. He is the light of the world. Now, what are you going to do? How will you respond? Will you come with your unmanageable need and entrust yourself to the light of God's favor? Because, see, that is, that's true sight. If, if blindness, if true blindness is the unwillingness to accept our need, then true sight is the willingness to trust God's provision for that need. That is true sight. And not only to trust, but to worship. I would have told the story of John 9 a little bit differently. I think I would have left the healing of this man until the very end. Because isn't that the most exciting part? This man seeing flowers and butterflies for the first time in his life. Isn't that the most exciting part of the story? But that's not the way the story happens here. That happens at the beginning. We get that out of the way and then we have a lot of other stuff to talk about. Why? Why does John tell the story this way? That healing at the beginning. Well, Because this man's sight isn't truly restored until he's at the feet of Jesus. He doesn't see fully 
completely as we were made to see. Until he says to the one who is the light of the world, I believe. And he falls down and he worships. Because that's true sight. True sight is the fitting response to the one who is God's face shining. This week I heard a recording of a remarkable concert. The Beaux-Arts Piano Trio, for over 50 years, was one of the premier classical chamber music ensembles in the world. Thousands of concerts, over 60 critically acclaimed recordings. Major players in the classical world. And in 2008, they decided to retire the group. And they did one final tour. And there's a recording of their final U.S. concert at the Tanglewood Music Festival in Massachusetts. And it's magnificent. They play Schubert and Beethoven and Dvorak and Shostakovich. And when the last note dies out in that concert, the audience explodes with applause with cheers, with shouts, way more raucous than you would expect at a classical music concert. (laughs) And you don't have to be an expert to understand that that was the most fitting response to that moment. These masters playing some of the most beautiful music ever written. How else would you respond in that moment? How much more fitting is the applause of our faith and our adoration to the one who not only proclaimed that he was the light of the world, who not only healed the blind, but who went to the cross for us. And for a moment, the world was plunged into darkness as the father hid the face of his favor from his son. As the Son suffered the full darkness of our evil, of our sin. The full darkness of a world that has been broken and ruined. So that three days later, the light of resurrection and new creation could dawn on our world. And in the lives of those who believe in Him. Will you join this man on his face before Jesus in this most fitting response? Not only of faith, but of worship, of adoration. He is the light of the world who took your darkness so you could live with God's eternally shining face of favor on you. You know, I think it is, I think for many of us in this room, it's so much easier to apply the first point. For most of us here, we're, we're good at noticing darkness. We can, we can, Roll around in the shame all day of I am a sinner. I am broken. 
but, but please with me, will you also notice the light? Can you hear the crucified and risen Jesus saying, yes, you're broken, you're a sinner, you have a need that you can't manage, but because of what I've done, you're forgiven. And you hear the crucified and risen Jesus saying, in the details of your life, with the power of resurrection, I am making you whole. I am making you complete. I am restoring what has been broken. Can you notice the light? Can you see who he is and what he has done for you. You see, God's grace isn't a hidden 3D image. It is right there in Jesus, crucified for you, risen for you. Look and worship.